and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, where I get to work with people in business and in sport. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So hopefully you are starting to call these skills strong skills. And you see, one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I truly have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten over the past year and a half. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand the reach of the podcast and new listeners are always finding us and sending us messages. So thanks to all of you who continue to support the podcast, whether it's writing a review or sending an episode to a friend or an email to a coworker. We really do appreciate when you share these intentional performers with the world. Speaking of an intentional performer, today's guest certainly checks that box. Gavin McClure is no stranger to adventure and exploration. It's going to come across real quick in this conversation that this guy is an explorer. He's a 2015 National Geographic Adventure of the Year for his unpowered paragliding expedition across the Canadian Rockies. It was documented in the Red Bull Media House feature film, The Rockies Traverse. It's pretty remarkable footage. I highly recommend. You do a Google search for Gavin and you will get some amazing video footage about what he does. He became the first person to traverse the full length of the Alaska range by foot and paraglider, unsupported. In 2016, as I mentioned, he was documented in the Red Bull Media House feature film, North of Known. He's the owner, founder, and captain of Offshore Odysseys, which we get into in this conversation. They are a global kite surfing, surfing, sailing expedition company. He has twice circumnavigated the world by sail, living at sea for 13 straight years, including shorthanded roundings of both notorious capes, Horn, and Good Hope. Gavin holds the former North American record for foot-launched cross-country paragliding, a flight of 240 miles deep into Montana from his hometown of Sun Valley, Idaho. Gavin is the first American and only third 
non-European to compete in the toughest adventure race on earth, which is called the Red Bull X Alps, a paragliding foot race across the Alps from Salzburg to Monaco. We will talk about that adventure and why Gavin's actually not going to be doing it anymore. And in 10 days, Gavin flew 1,560 kilometers, walked 498, which is 12 plus marathons, and scaled 52,000 meters of vertical ascent on foot. It basically is climbing Mount Everest five times. So Gavin competed again in 2017, 2019, and 2021 at that competition. So you're going to learn from Gavin today. This is a conversation about wisdom, about hope, about optimism, about what's possible. And he is absolutely intentional with how he shows up for life in multitude of ways. So I can't even give him any more introduction. You got his bio. Here's Gavin. Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you. This is going to be fun. I said to you as we were chatting before I hit record, I don't know where to start. Like there are so many entry points in your life. But the thing that I actually am most interested in as I was doing research for this is your relationship with your dad. Um, You said on another podcast that he used to wear a t-shirt that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I'm listening to how you live your life and how you think your life. And it sounds like your philosophy is a little bit different. So talk about dad, the impact he's had on your life and, and maybe how you've learned how you want to live differently. And maybe there's some similarities to how you see things as well. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show. First of all, it's a great show and I'm, I'm really honored to be here. And it's like, man, that's a tough and great first question. My dad was my hero and really best friend uh, until he died. He, he, cancer got him in 2013, but he very eccentric, incredibly bright, and just one of those guys that filled the room. You know, he was always the, he's very Irish. He was a storyteller and he was just the biggest personality always. Uh, an incredible talker, a terrible listener. And, you know, there are things about me that he he very much molded me into what I am in a sense, but also a lot of things that he was were pretty oil and water to me. And and they were from the very beginning. I I don't I don't know where that came from. Yeah, that T-shirt. I mean, he wore it with a lot of pride and and it it was kind of funny the the back of it had the writing on the back and then it had these two little droop downs under his butt it was the ugliest t-shirt ever you know it was just one of these very i want to say 80s kind of t-shirts and but that was his creed Uh, you know he came from the depression and his dad was an oil man and you know one of the you know drunk and he was you know his, his dad was either loaded or totally broke and and my dad was as well, you know, in his fifties, he was selling RVs on a lot up in Everett, Washington. And, uh, you know, he'd made and lost a couple fortunes and fortunes by that era standards, not by today's standards, you know, with like we were talking about NFTs and, you know, he was never been a wall street guy, not that kind of money at all, but, um, yeah, was either broke and living in an RV or living on top of the world and, you know, willing to risk it all over and over and over again. So, uh, you know, I, I think it definitely, you know, the money thing never just never jived with me and never fit. I never really understood it. Um, you know, I could see that it, you know, we did a, we did these crazy boat trips when I was a kid, we did one from, from Bellingham, Washington up to Glacier Bay, Alaska and back. And so I, I definitely understood that, okay, well, you know, earning money brings you some fun opportunities, but uh, at the same time, I also saw that it, it uh, drove him to some pretty dark places, especially in his old age. It, when he he had a he had a big hit when he was kind of in his early sixties, and from that day until he died, he was so afraid of losing that money. It, it just it drove every decision, and so uh, yeah, for, you know. So I think it was one. Of, he's one of these people that I still to this day really look up to. But I also, there was a lot of things in him that I thought, okay, I, that's not what I want to become. The adventure in him, the fact that he would take you on journeys and adventures. And then I think in 1999, the two of you sailed from Vancouver to Santa Barbara. Yeah. To talk about some of the adventures that you had, specifically that 1999 adventure, because it sounded like it was quite, quite a journey and adventure. 
Yeah, auspicious beginnings. That was that's kind of what started it all in terms of my sailing adventures. That was the first big one, and that led to uh, two circumnavigations. But at the time, neither he or I had ever been offshore. We'd done a couple little things on the outside of Vancouver Island. You know, when I was a kid, we like I said, we went up to Glacier Bay, Alaska, and we got hit by a storm at the north end of Vancouver Island, crossing the Queen Charlotte Sound. So we had some sea experience. Looking back, we were as green as it gets, but we thought we kind of knew what we were doing. And I was the captain on that trip. Funnily enough, it was his boat, but it was just because I knew more than my dad. And my dad was he was one of these people, you know, growing up where, you know, if something broke, you call the guy to get it fixed. He, he wasn't a hands-on go dive into the toolbox. We didn't have tools. So I had never learned any of that. And, and because, and he was at an age where, you know, every time we'd go to jive, I'd have to remind dad to duck. You know, he, it was just, he was having a hard time figuring it out. Even though, like I said, he was brilliant. He was a brilliant guy, but he was, you know, he was just at that age where, you know, learning new tricks was, was a hard thing. Like an old, Gavin, teaching an old dog, new tricks. Was it, was it his idea or your idea to do this? It was his, especially originally, you know, he would sit in bars. Like I said, he was very gregarious, very Irish. And he would, you know, he wanted to live out his days for some reason, like Robinson Crusoe, you know, just sail off into the sunset and live out his days in the South Pacific kind of thing which always baffled me because he needed to be around people all the time and tell his stories. And uh, he was a very good storyteller. So I didn't really understand that, but he, he got this fascination with sailing, living in the Northwest, you know, living in the Seattle area and Puget Sound. And we spent a lot of time out on the water, but using power boats growing up. And, and he, but he got this fascination with sailing and the whole time through his fifties, when he was totally broke every weekend, we would go to the docks and in in Elliott Bay and the Puget Sound and and uh, Lake Union and just look at boats. We didn't know what we were looking at. We didn't know uh, you know a monohull from a cat from a you know we didn't know anything about sailboats. We literally understood nothing. But we would just look at them. He was a real estate guy. He liked looking at stuff. And and uh, finally he had a he he did a little deal and bought a small little CNC thirty six foot CNC which is kind of a production cheap boat kind of like a Medito, and we learned how to sail on it together. And, and then I, I got really into it. I always thought it looked so boring, but I got really, I started taking courses in celestial navigation and, but it was definitely his idea. And it, and he was the catalyst to get it all going. And then in 99, the trip you're talking about, we decided we were on the outside of Vancouver Island that summer before. And we met this guy who used to be the uh, director of eight is enough. You remember that show? And no. for years and years, yeah, it's before your time, but it's a, it was a big TV show for years and years. And he was the director and he was just finishing up a circumnavigation. He was literally coming into Vancouver Island at the end of this 10 year circ circumnavigation. And he'd done it with his girlfriend. And it's at that point, his girlfriend hated him and wanted to get back on land. And he, but he wanted to keep going. So he was looking for crew. And, uh, and he said, Hey, you know, you know anybody that would crew for me out you know i'm, I'm taking off for tahiti in a, in a year from now and i said well I'll, I'll do it that sounds amazing and but he was leaving from santa barbara and my dad had a fascination with santa barbara he loved that part of the world and he said well let's sail down to santa barbara and then you can go with this guy ed and crew with him to tahiti and, and uh so that's what started all that but we when we sailed out of the straits of juan de fuca and turned left and started heading south it was late October, you know, at a time of year where you really don't want to be doing that trip. It's pretty dicey. You get all the storms coming across from Japan. And uh, we got the absolute shit kicked out of us the whole way. And uh, it was pretty scary. We actually got in hurricane force winds off Cape Mendocino and got knocked down, which means that's when your mast goes in the water, you know, so you don't roll all the way through, but got knocked down. My dad was clipped in. Uh, thankfully he was on watch at that point. I was down below asleep because I hadn't slept in a couple of days at that point. And, uh, you know, it was pretty touch and go there for a while. He was catatonic for about 14 hours, just like this, just staring at you. Couldn't talk. Um, he cracked his ankle really hard doing it. But, I mean, if he hadn't been clipped in, he'd be dead. I mean, we literally, he went right over the right over the uh, lifelines. And then luckily when the boat righted itself, it threw them back into the boat. And, uh, and that's what started about a nine hour battle with, like I said, hurricane force winds and huge seas, you know, way bigger than the boat. Um, lots of 
crazy stories came out of that one, but we, we almost got run over by a tanker that night. And uh, luckily we kind of limped into Fort Bragg the next morning and Coast Guard came out and directed us. And we didn't, we were still, we were fine. We were, you know, we were, the boat was okay in a sense. I mean, she was real beat up, but we'd lost all the lifelines on one side. The, the cockpit it was a center cockpit sloop and the, the cockpit had a kind of a hard dodger. And then with that soft plexi window, you know, the, the, the kind you can just roll up. And one of the waves hit us so the one that knocked us over hit us so hard it blew all those windows right out of the boat. And so that whole night when we were kind of beam on the seas to get to Fort Bragg, we we I, I we needed to get to shore. I was really worried about my dad because he was kind of catatonic. I mean, he was breathing and alive, but he wasn't talking. He was so freaked out. And um, I, so we we kind of instead of going dead downwind, which we had been when we got knocked down, we were kind of beam on the seas, which is quite a bit rougher. And we were taking so much water, you couldn't even see the nav lights at the bow of the boat. And it was ripping so hard. The wind was just, you know, it, it, the sea was a froth and the wind was so strong that it was just blowing the tops of the waves off. And so the only part of your body that was exposed, we're all in our heavy weather gear. There's, there was three of us, but my dad was out. So it's just my buddy and I had kind of taken shifts and he had never sailed before. So he was totally green. And, you know, the, the only part of our body that was exposed were just our eyes. And, uh, but you couldn't see because the, the salt water was ripping so hard and stinging so hard and we didn't have any protection in the cockpit. And uh, yeah, it was, I mean, this was my first big trip. <laughs> so uh, you know, if you, we got to Fort Bragg and did a bunch of repairs and then and then sailed down to Santa Barbara uh, a few weeks later. And when we got to Santa Barbara, my dad just, you know, the whole dreams of of Robinson Crusoe were out the window. He, I'm selling this boat. Screw this. I'm out of here. This is this is stupid. And uh, and that's what allowed me to buy the boat is, you know, I, I got a job bartending down there and worked like crazy for a year and you know, this was 1999, the tech stocks were going crazy. And I had some money invested, uh, little tiny money invested, but it was enough to make a down payment on the boat and buy the boat on what my dad called the easy squeegee payment plan. <laughs> so it, it took eight years to pay it off. But that's kind of what started my whole business of kite surfing. And that's what started me with sailing around the world. So that I think in January 21, I started my cir first circumnavigation and uh spent the next 15 years at sea so yeah he definitely got me going and so it was Gavin, his Gavin, dream this is what this is what i'm fascinated by is this moment because i think you wrote on your website he was done he's like ah, maybe wow. he's like i'm going to the bar it's safer there right like <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. but for you you're like no give me more of that and like even in your, your ski racing career, I think you like blew out your knee. Um, but you're like, heck, I want to be on the U S ski team as, you know, as a young, young teenager, I, like you had your dreams and your vision. And so then it took, I think, blowing out the other knee to sort of cause you to go to college and maybe go a different path and a different route. But I'm fascinated by, it seems as though your childhood wasn't the most secure or the most safe childhood. It was ups and downs financially. Perhaps it was ups and downs with a dad who liked to drink a lot. Um, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it sounded like you were valuing safety and security in the household as a kid. And yet it doesn't sound like safety and security is a number one value for you as an adult. So what inside of you allows you to say, no, give me more of what we'd call Maybe the maybe you'd call it risk, or maybe you would call it something else. What what in you goes toward that? Because a lot of other people that I've worked with, if they had an if they had ups and downs financially in their childhood, a lot of them go toward security. security. A lot of them they go toward, yeah. hey, I want to have a job because I don't want to see the ups and downs that I saw my my parents go through, and I want to just create some safety and security for me and my family and ground us almost for you. It's almost the opposite. Like you do have the explorer mind that your dad might've had while it might, his might've been in real estate. Yours might be in nature, but there's, there's some reason why you're like, Hey, I want to go toward risk. Let's call it. Tell me a little bit about why that is. Yeah. I, 
I don't have a great answer for you, but I can take you through some some stories. My, you're you're absolutely right about my my childhood. And, and just to clarify, my my dad wasn't a big drinker. He was he was a big guy bar guy. He was always Got in it. the bar, but he was a talker. His dad was a drinker. Got he was it. a bad one. But but uh, yeah, my my parents divorced when I was six. My 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 sister had just been born. It was really bad. It was a terrible divorce. And it was, you know, for years after that, it was the whole alimony and court battles. And, but I always spent summer with dad and the school year with mom. And, but it was, it was the clash of Titans there in a sense. Were they living in the same area or did you No, go- my dad, when they divorced, we were living in Lake Tahoe. We, I grew up in Lake Tahoe and that was the whole start of the ski racing and that lived in the mountains. But when my dad, when they divorced, my dad went from real estate kind of developer restaurant guy to growing a beard that was two feet long and wandering all over Canada. He just got in his car and, and drove. He's an explorer. He was an explorer. I guess. Yeah. It's, I mean, he's a golfer. I mean, you know, he was a, he, he was a pro, you know, he used to play with Arnold Palmer for a couple of years and he was a, a teaching professional at the LA country club. I mean, he was the, to me, the opposite of explorer his whole life. Yeah. He was, he was a country club kind of guy. And then, uh, and then they got divorced, but he was a, he was an explorer in terms of his entrepreneurial spirit. He was always trying stuff that was 10 years too far in the future. And yeah, He was a risk taker. He was someone massive who- risk taker, massive risk taker yeah. as, as, as real estate people often are. And, and by real estate, he wasn't residential. It was commercial stuff. It was golf courses and that kind of thing, but literally one in 50 would work. He was just a massive dreamer. He was always jotting everything down on napkins and telling everybody about these crazy plans. And you know, one, like I said, one out of 50 would work. It was so certainly some of that spirit came from him. I, I, I've never had that kind of business mind, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of that tumultuousness and just lack of base and grounding all those years certainly led to it, but it's, but it's weird. It's like you said, most people go to security when they have that kind of background. And for me, it was the opposite it drove my mom crazy, literally crazy. She thought that the way, again, because of her history and where she comes from and her, her business uh, forever has been corporate travel. So you work for IBM, you do a great job. They take you to Hawaii for a week. So she's, she runs the ground operations for incentive tours, that's called. And, you know, so to her, the perfect job was, or the perfect life was get a really good education, get a job for IBM or Procter and Gamble or some big corporations and get, get a trip once a week. I mean, sorry, once a year for a week and have retirement and all these things. So absolute security. And for some reason that just never, I mean, her, my ski racing drove her crazy because I didn't care about school and all I wanted to do was ski race and get on the U S team. Uh, and, but even then, even back then, when I was really young, I was drawn to the speed events. I was drawn to downhill. And then, event, you know, the Super G wasn't even a thing back then. But, you know, when Super G started becoming a thing, then Super G, and I didn't really like the tech stuff. It was too slow. So for whatever reason, I've always been drawn to speed and risk and often stuff that has life-threatening risk. You know, I spent a few years out of college uh, chasing really hard rivers. I got really into paddling and, uh, would just huck myself off crazy stuff. And so I don't know, I, you know, my, like I said, my dad was a golfer. I, I don't think of golf as being very crazy. So, uh, I'm not sh- too sure where that came, but it's, uh, what Gavin, I know maybe, it is, is a maybe, habit. Yeah. It might be the feeling of feeling alive. And so your totally, dad, well, definitely it's right? an addiction, right? So dad Absolutely. felt alive when he was doing deals or he was talking or dreaming or writing things on a napkin. I would imagine for you, whether it's kayaking in Mexico where you almost die, you know, you know, in paddling or it's, you know, gliding or it's sailing uh, or it's skiing, there is an element of feeling alive. What does it feel like when you're in those types of spaces and environments? Yeah. It, you know, it feels like flow, right? And when you're, when you're, when you're letting your subconscious do the work and you're so embedded in the moment, then 
all of this frivolous stuff that drives life that's distracting and stressful and sometimes painful goes away, right? It, it's, it, you're just encapsulated and captured in this moment. And those moments, as Stephen Kotler has written a lot about in flow, uh, in his flow studies are way more addictive than the most powerful drugs. And so it's actually just talking to my, one of my supporters is uh, in the X Alps. I do this race called the Red Bull X Alps every other year, and I've done four of them. And my trainer and one, my very best friend and my supporter in all of them is this guy, Ben Abruzzo. He lives down in Albuquerque. And I was just talking to him last night that I think the Red Bull X Ops has in some ways ruined my life. And that was tongue in cheek in a sense. But what I meant by it is that it's such a massive endeavor and it's not just the race, which is 12 days long, but it's, you know, the training and the anticipation and the preparation. It's, it's really a massive endeavor. And then you get the race, which is 12 days of the greatest buzz ever. I mean, there's the downs and the ups and it's physically incredibly. Hey Gavin, can you set the table for people that don't know about it? Like what, what exactly it is and, and what you're doing? Yeah. The rebel X Alps is a, a race across the Alps that you're allowed to travel only by foot or by paraglider. So you're, you're trying to fly paraglider and this is unpowered paragliding uh, as much as you possibly can. You have to carry all that gear the whole way. You have a support team that can feed you and water you and help you strategize and, you know, keep you up to date on the weather. And there's a, we have a race vehicle, a van that you can sleep in at night, but you get very little rest for 12 days and you go as hard as you possibly can against the best pilots on earth and the best kind of adventure athletes on earth, because there's, there's a, there's a massive ground game. You're, you're doing, you know, a, a marathon and a half or more a day. Uh, and you're climbing in all my races, I've done four and, and all of them, I've climbed the height of Everest four or five times in the duration of the race. So an incredible amount of vertical, you know, most of them have been around 50,000 vertical meters during that 12 days. So you're going uphill a lot. You're trying to get to the top of the mountain to launch off and fly. And obviously flying is way easier than walking or running. So you're, you're trying to fly as much as possible. And, but you're also battling, you know, this isn't recreational flying. You're, you're battling often really strong winds and hail and snow and sun and, rain and sleet and this year was especially challenging the weather was crazy this year so yeah so it's kind of a battle against your own mind and the elements and uh you're having this crazy experience with your team you know i've been it i think it's kind of compared to like going to war um it's very intense um why do you do it gavin why do you why do you go through that it's so outrageously fun Uh, it's you know you get to again you know, there are, as Stephen talks about in his books, you know, there are easy and hard ways to get to that place. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting that in air quotes for those of you who can't see this, but you know, those who have spent time in the outdoors or, you know, you can get there playing the cello, but that place is something that I think most of your listeners understand you know, that this is a place that is rare to get to. And it's a real buzz. And, you know, it's kind of, it's similar to what runners talk about with a runner's high, where everything just gets sharp and in focus and beautiful climbers talk about it, where they're, you know, scaling El Capitan, you know, Honold, where suddenly the little tiniest flower sticking out of the rock can be the most beautiful, most mesmerizing thing. And you completely are disconnected from the fact that you're thousands of feet off the, off the earth. And if you make a tiny mistake, you're dead. Um, so you're, you're so focused and there's no, in a sense, there's no risk because you're so in, you, you've got that move. You, 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 you have it, you've trained for it. Your subconscious has it. There's your, your, your respiratory rate is sleeping. You know, you're, you're absolutely calm with enormous risk. Uh, and so it's a beautiful headspace to, to be. And, but like I said, it's a, it's very addictive. And so that's, but that's why I do it is, is that, and that's why it's ruined my life. And <laughs> that's the joke. Do you think that, of it as a risk, Gavin? You just said, you said, I do, 
I you do, do think yeah. you acknowledge that it's risky still absolutely as much pre- preparation you're going off the alps in a no it'd know, be stupid to say there's and, no risk no yeah. It, it, yeah absolutely i mean especially this year the, the conditions we were battling were absolutely life-threatening almost every day and or at least 10 days of the race were just ludicrous and you know several of the athletes have fear injuries you know almost ptsd type stuff uh there were a lot of accidents you know and I'm paragliding is just risky period. Just going off my local hill in the morning, you know, it's you're, you're aviating it's risky, but the race is really risky because to do well, you have to fly in obnoxious conditions. And so hopefully I've answered why I do it, but it's, you know, that I, I retired from it this year because, you know, I have a four-year-old and just, you know, that the risks are enormous. And I think eventually for everybody that, uh, the luck's going to run out. And so I've been enormously lucky, you know, the way more than nine burned lives. Right. So, uh, Hey Gavin, one of your, it's hard to replace that. Yeah. One of your nine lives, let's call it is you, you know, you're paddling in Mexico with your buddy Tao and another friend, Brett, and, and they think you're, you're dead, um, waiting for you at, you know, at the end of a waterfall, you after that decide, you know what, maybe I'm not gonna keep going on this kayaking, these adventures. And I hear you now saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm done doing these, these adventures, um, you know, on the Alps, because I have a four year old daughter. And, and so I'm, I'm fascinated by like, what does put you like over the edge? So it makes sense to me. It's like, Hey, I got a daughter now. I need to be smarter with my decision-making. But back then you also said, Hey, you know, that, that experience, I don't think I want to be there again. Like where, how do you get for most humans, for most of us, we never get to that point, right? We don't, we don't uh, live on that edge, so to speak. Uh, I have had people on here that, you know, an astronaut, someone in the military who they, they do, they go toward those types of experiences. Um, Nick Walenda I had on the podcast who puts himself in those types of situations. So for you, what, how do you make that decision to say, Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to stop doing this. I don't know if it's a conscious decision, actually, you know, the, the kayaking definitely wasn't, I couldn't do it. Uh, it was, you know, I came off the river that day and Brett was, was, you know, you, you need to stop. And tail was, you need to get back on the horse or you're never going to be able to do this again. Let's keep paddling and, and just shelve that shelve what just happened or, or you're done kayaking. And I did, I got back on the river and I was terrified and I have done fun river trips since, you know, I've been down the grand Canyon and the Selway and I've done some really nice river trips, but I've never been able to pursue it at that level. And I've never wanted to, it just, it ended for me that day. So, and it, like I said, I don't, it wasn't a conscious decision. I was 25. Uh, I was still, you know, I wasn't, it was, it wasn't that, Oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to stop taking risks or stop being adventurous, but it was definitely, I can't, this is going to kill me. This sport's going to kill me. And until that day, I didn't understand death. I I hadn't looked it straight in the face. I hadn't really, I had said all the cliche things. If I die doing something I love, you know, I've died doing something I love. That's just, that day made me realize that's just horseshit, man. That you're, that's stupid. What a dumb thing to say. What a dumb thing to live by. You know, all my family, my friends, everything flooded in and made me realize, wow, this is a really selfish endeavor. And this is stupid. I mean, A, you're not good enough to do what you're doing. You know, you're, you're not, you're not trained enough. You don't have the hours. You're not good enough for, you're taking risks that's beyond your skill level. So, um, and, but I also just, it, kayaking was never the same for me after that. It didn't work. And I'm sure that if I had maybe a similar experience, you know, since then I've never had, I've been in a lot of situations where, you know, the outside world would gone, you know, I spent the night in the ocean on a night, on a night dive gone really bad where the, the authorities thought I was dead. And my, 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 the people on the boat thought I was dead, but I never was, I never thought I was dead. You know, I'm a good swimmer. I was fine. You know, we were going to be fine. We just had to wait. We just had to ride it out. Um, but I've never had a situation like that where it was, 
you know, pinned under the water out of air for at least five minutes where, you know, my brain was, you're dead. You are dead. You are not going to survive this. And, uh, and that was really spooky. And so I've never been in a situation since, and that ruined, that ended my kayaking, but uh, I still am very, I've always been very passionate about adventure. Um, you know, I think risk and taking, taking risk that you are trained for, isn't that risky. And it, like you said, it very much makes you feel alive. I don't like the adrenaline junkie thing. You know, I, I really don't want to die doing what I do. And, um, you know, I, I try to keep it between the lines. You know, I try to keep it between, you know, in the skill level that I have and not go beyond that. And various people I have adventured with over the years have been really instrumental. Will Gad was a big one. I did this Rockies traverse across the Canadian Rockies with him. And, you know, he's been able to walk that fine line longer than I have. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't do this if I thought there was a good chance that I wouldn't make it out. You it's, know, I, it's, it's interesting. Cause what I'm hearing is I love feeling alive. Like I love, you know, gliding and skiing and hiking and traversing. Like I love it. So I want to experience that uh, more. Um, yes. And, and so I'm curious, like, how do you think about death? Like, wh- what are your thoughts on death? What's your relationship with the idea of death. How, how do you think about it? Death is a fascinating animal. You know, I am, we all, none of us make it out. Right. And so death is something that I, I really have, I think about a lot and I don't think about it in a very morose way. I, I feel celebratory in a sense towards the concept of death and to me, it's a, it's a driver. It's kind of like fear. Fear is a really good thing. Fear keeps you alive and death, you know, the inevitability of death is to me, it's a really good thing because it, it reminds me every day of how important and how precious every day is. Right. So to me, it's, I'm not afraid of it. Uh, I don't want to die before my time, but I want to live a really full life because death's coming, man. It's knocking on my door. Like it's knocking on everybody else's. And I'm a little confused with, I I think that's part of our society. I don't think we deal with death very much. Um, You know, I, I'm a little confused that when my dad died, I got to spend some time with him uh, and he was in, um, just off the coast of Malaysia, trying to blank right now, Brew, uh, Borneo. He was in Borneo and when he was dying. And I got to spend some time with him. You know, he'd lost half his weight. He was in terrible shape. And he was terrified of dying. Yeah, you could just, he was so scared. And I'd never really seen my dad scared. And I, it really threw me. I, I didn't really understand it. He'd had this great life and he'd done amazing things. And you know, he was pretty old. He was in his late seventies. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I resolved watching him go through that process that I would try to be a little more celebratory about it. And, you know, I think you can look, if you can look back with some regrets, but not a lot, hopefully it's, not too bad of a thing. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't gone through it, but I'm certainly not, um, I'm not, I don't feel a lot of anguish about it. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, doesn't scare me too much. Maybe that's because I've been close to it many times. You know, I, I think it's okay. When, when you hear the word enough, what comes to mind for you? Boy, a lot of things come to mind to me. That's a hard one. The, the, the quick word is stop, but enough. I almost see my dad saying that to me. That's enough, Gavin. <laughs> almost like a, you know, just that that's enough, Gavin, stop. Um, that's how I felt about the X-Ops this year. Uh, when I got done was okay. That's enough that that's, that's too much. Now, 
you know, six months post race, you go through that. What I always go through is, Ooh, I, you know, I'd sure like to do that one more time. Yeah. That itch. Um, I, I need to solve that. I, I think we all need to solve that. You know, there's, I, I think I mentioned in another show once that I went and had one therapy session with this guy and I asked him about this very thing. And, and he said, well, in the town you live in, Gavin, I've, I've done, I've had a lot of therapy with athletes that, you know, that pursue high level things. And, you know, in, in my experience, I've seen that they've, there's two ways that they go down is alcohol or drugs, or they die. You know, they keep trying to get that, you know, uh, moment that we were just talking about. They keep pushing for that and they push too hard or they give it up. And that leaves them with, you know, uh, that leaves them with a lack of meaning and they, they go to something else that's not very healthy. So I think that we've all got to figure out how to replace that rush with something else. I'm fascinated by that word because I think saying to ourselves, I am enough is liberating for a lot of people just from an identity standpoint. Like, yeah, mm. I am enough that as a father or as a husband or as a friend or as a son, like, yeah, I'm enough. Like, and thinking about your dad as he's dying, like, yeah, you're enough. Like you've lived a good life. Like you should look in the mirror and say, I'm enough. And then there's the other side of the coin where it's like, and I want to keep growing and learning and experiencing. And, and so it's like, I always call call it like the ability to be and the ability to become and like, how can I be yeah. enough and how can I become more and not attach my identity to the chase necessarily, not attach my identity to the itch. Just because I have that itch doesn't mean that I shouldn't just be with my four-year-old right now. Maybe yes. that's where I need to be. I think that that's, you're, you're talking about attainment. And I, I think that we have to, we have to be wary of attainment and separate ourselves from, you know, for example, the race, what's more important? Is it to just enjoy the experience and have the adventure for the adventure it is, or is it to do well? Yeah. Compete. And what, and what does do well mean? Mm -hmm. You know, so who's having the most fun? That's what I want to do. I want to have the most fun. Um, and so, and, but that means, taking that ego ego and crushing it and putting it aside. And that's a hard thing to do. And I don't have that mastered at all. I don't remember at all. And so, but I think that, you know, the more we separate ourselves from attainment um, and at the same time, the more we can be present, then you're winning. Right. And, and, and I'm not saying I have the answer for that, but I like that word enough. I, I, I hadn't thought about it in that way. That's, Yes, I, I like that is to just, you know, just being who you are is good enough. I like that. Thank and you. <laughs> I loved your I loved your TED talk. I thought it was it was awesome. And you spliced in all these cool videos. And it, I just thought it was a really unique and cool TED talk. So well done on that. And I encourage people to check that out if they haven't already. In that TED talk, you talk about going to Mount Robson and doing this expedition and on this mountain, I think one of the guys said, you only actually see the mountain 10% of the time when you drive by it because it's covered in, you know, snow and clouds and, you know, all of mother nature's beauty. Um, but there was a quote in there that I don't know if it was you or someone who you were doing it with that stuck with me where they said, or you said, you have to be dumb enough to do this and smart enough to get to the ground safely. And I'm someone who believes in the power of polarity and that we all need these different sides of us in order to be successful at whatever it is we're trying to be successful at. So for you, as you navigate your own life, where is it that you have to be quote unquote dumb? And where is it that you also have to be smart? How do you think about that polarity? Oh, another good one. Yeah, that was my buddy, my neighbor, Nate Scales, that said that. And he's got the best perspectives on everything. But, you know, I, we have to take risk, right? You have to be, at some times, you have to be dumb enough to launch. And it, otherwise, life is pretty gray. Uh, and at least to me. Uh, so, yeah, I like thinking about life like that. You know, you, you have to drop in and you have to walk to the end and take a leap. And, you know, I try to instill that in my daughter all the time. 
you know, if you're not falling, you're not pushing hard enough. And uh, again, you've got this one chance. And, you know, I think that seeing life through that lens has given me everything. And I'm so grateful for those gifts. And I don't know, I can't imagine life without it. But at the same time, you don't want to drop into a couloir that's going to rip, you know? And when I'm in the backcountry, that I grew up skiing. I can ski, you know, I understand skiing. And, but the backcountry has a lot of hazards that are not very visible and they're, they're buried deep. And, uh, you know, so I think, I think finding that balance again, walking that line of, you know, just enough and enough push, but that you're going to get home and have, have dinner with your family is that's a beautiful place to be. And it's a beautiful place to figure out. And that place changes every day and it changes as we age and it changes as we get less resilient and less durable. And, uh, and that fine line can be found in, playing with my daughter on the bed, having a wrestle session, you know, that's a pretty nice place to be too. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm more and more aware of the need to be more present. That's, that's my new year's resolution every year is not to drink more water and not, to, you know, it's just to, just to be more present, just to be here and, uh, and to be, grateful and thankful about that. I'll tell you something we do as a family every day that has really helped me with this journey is we just do this gratitude thing every night at dinner. What are you grateful for, Fal? That's my daughter. She's four. And uh, man, that's a couple minutes. That's just, boy, you know, it's pretty nice to just be mindful that we're breathing still. And so that's helped me, I think, with the transition to slow down a little bit. You mentioned your daughter a bunch here and you talk about teaching her and teaching her to jump and take risks. What has she taught you? Oh, good God. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) I got a five-year-old daughter and a six-year-old boy. It's, it's, oh, you think you know some things, then go try to parent. It is a job I've ever had. (laughs) Hard. It's so hard. It's yeah, it's really hard. Um, I read somewhere that kids laugh some order of magnitude more than adults. So I, she's taught me to laugh more again. I think that's a good one that you talk about being present, you know, uh, they're not distracted with phones and BS. And, you know, she's just thrilled with the tiniest little thing. So one of my, one of my mentors, a little story here, one of my kind of mentors and one of my idols is my, my ex-girlfriend's brother, this guy named Ken McDonald. He lives up in Alaska. He's a bush pilot mechanic. They live off the grid. Uh, you know, the nearest town's a short flight away in their plane. Um, and, uh, you know, but he, he works in the winter when it's dark fixing planes and, you know, resuscitating super cubs and that kind of thing. And then nine months out of the year, they just play as a family. And, you know, they, they have a very simple life in a sense where they're just living in Alaska. And to me, they're kind of living the dream. And, you know, he's the kind of guy that'll buy a, a skydiving rig off eBay and jump out, you know, <laughs> with that, you know, we'll watch some YouTube videos, no instruction, just figure it out. But, but he, but he's really careful about flying plane. He's the guy when, when planes crash up in Alaska, which happens all the time, he's the one that goes out and rescues them with duct, you know, when a bear eats a plane, which they do all the time, he'll get the rolls of duct tape and a couple of tires and he'll go out and fly the plane back home. Um, but he, the way he interacts with his kids is like watching magic. You know, he's just right down in the dirt with them, digging up snails and his curiosity for the natural world has really been embedded in his kids. And <clears throat> I think that's something that kids have naturally. You know, my, my daughter can play with leaves and twigs and show me stuff that she's found out there that I just go, uh-huh. And she's fascinated by it. And, uh, you know, Kenny's in his mid-50s and he's still fascinated by it. So 
I'm trying to be more curious because of my daughter. That's what she's taught me is to be more curious. So I'm obsessed with curiosity and I'm really curious. You, you've sailed the world. How does, how does curiosity show as you're going around the world? Like walk us through that. Once again, most people, they're listening to this. Maybe they get inspired to do some of the stuff that you've done, but honestly, I'm not aspiring to do a lot of the stuff that you've done. So, but I enjoy, I enjoy learning about it. Like I really do. I, I, it's inspiring. And um, sometimes those that inspire us are not who we aspire to be, but maybe it involves us just going for a walk around the neighborhood, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be some massive risk for us to feel alive. To your point, it could be wrestling with our daughter. Um, mm-hmm. So for you, I'd love to step into curiosity, especially as you're exploring the world and what you're seeing and what you're noticing um, as you're sailing around the world. What was that like for you and, and how did curiosity play a role? You know, when you were just saying that, what I started thinking about was self-reliance. I think, I think one of the things that really drew me to it was a curiosity of exploring what are you capable of, man? You know, like I said, my, I didn't grow up being able to fix things. Well, you start running a boat, all you're doing is fixing things all the time. And, you know, it's, I discovered that it was pretty fun to pull a generator into a bunch of different pieces and try to put it back together or a water maker or a pump or an engine. Uh, because out there, no one, you can't call the guy. No one's going to come and or the girl, no one's going to come fix it for you. And in most of the places we went, our specialty, this was my business. This is how I make it live. I just didn't get to sail around the world. I was, we were running kite surfing charters and it, more of a membership kind of thing, but it was, uh, you know, we were in, Madagascar and Mozambique and the, the Chagos and the Cargados, you know, places that most people never even heard of, let alone been. And there's no, there's no marinas, there's no fix-it place, there's no chandleries. Um, you know, you've got to, you got to have the tools and the wherewithal and the supplies and the spare parts to keep the thing running, especially because it's good commercial. I had guests, you know, so I needed that water maker. We're going to run out of water. Um, so I, a lot of that curiosity was just, can I do it? And then you start doing it and you realize you can, and it becomes a habit. Um, And the other part of curiosity was, I think that drove me all those years was, it was a constant reset on perspective. And what I mean by that was, you know, when you live offshore, off a community, like we did in Southern Madagascar, it's one of the poorest, I think it's the fourth poorest nation on earth. And when you see how people live, you know, they had wagons and goats and, you know, they're, they're, they're suffering a real starvation issue right now. This is 10, we were there 10 years ago, but um, it's a very part of the very poor part of the world. And, you know, that just, that perspective constantly, that reminder of, wow, we are lucky. Wow. We are fortunate. Uh, was, was it just a constant lesson that I really enjoyed? You know, that we lived in Fiji for quite a while and, you know, living with the Fijians and gaining their perspective and seeing how those communities operate. They're very, very different than what we have here in the West. And, you know, you could make a pretty clear argument that what they have is better, even though they have a lot less. And so how so Gavin, it's a community you're not walled off and isolated and living on your own and privacy. That's not an issue. You know, the kids just run around to all the different little huts and the kids are being raised by all the mothers and all the dads. And, you know, there's not so much weight on one person. You know, there's none of this providing for your family. The community provides for the family. The chief provides for the family. Um, You know, everybody's looking out for everybody. Not everybody is looking out for you. And I mean, by you, I mean, by me. And, and uh, I don't know, there's more joy there. There's less strife. There's less division. Maybe that's being highlighted right now and just where we live and what's going on in, in, in the world. But uh, yeah, I, that perspective is something I draw on. Not, I haven't, I don't sail anymore. I haven't been out there in quite a few years, uh, but I, it, it's that experience. Those experiences were, were really valuable to me. And it also sometimes just as a, 
as a, as an escape, you know, as a, you know, if I'm going through a really hard time, I can sit and kind of meditate on an experience I had with a manta ray in Ponape or, uh, you know, that, that was really special to me at the time. And it can, it can be kind of a nice place to go mentally for a few minutes or a little while. If I'm going through something that I haven't really been able to figure out. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, that your dad was a great storyteller but not a great listener. Are you someone who, are you a great storyteller? Are you a great listener? How do you think about that for yourself? I'm not nearly the storyteller he was for sure. Part of it, because I don't have a very good memory, uh, but I certainly like telling stories. You know, when I was the captain of the boat all those years, you know, we'd always sit around dinner every night with the clients and, and uh, I like telling stories. I love writing. So I'm nowhere near the storyteller he was, but I like to think I could do a little storytelling. I like to think I'm a better listener too. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an imperfect being by a long ways. And, but I, I, my dad wasn't very patient. He had a really fiery personality and he would snap and he would get mean and bitter, um, especially in his, his later years. And so that was good to see for me and, you know, a reminder to try to not be that way. So I like to think I'm more patient, but, you know, I'm a work in progress. And one of the things you mentioned about him was that he was a dreamer. And as I researched you, you're, you're a dreamer. You dreamt of being on the U.S. ski team. You dreamt of sailing and adventuring. And I'm sure you dreamt of these four you know, experiences that you've had in the Alps and the competitions. What are you dreaming about next? <laughs> I have a few dreams. Right now, I'm pretty focused on the, the dream that's right in front of me, which is building a house. I've always wanted to build a house. I've always wanted to kind of build a, an eco-type home. And I'm really scared of it because it's expensive <laughs> and it's, uh, it's something very unlike anything I've ever done. Uh, you know, usually the things I tackle, I'm incredibly optimistic about. I just have this inner sense that it's going to work out and we're going to pull it off. And I don't have that kind of confidence with this, with this project for some, for whatever reason, I'm just, I'm not a carpenter. And so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty focused on that. I'm, I've had a dream a long time to finish what I left in Alaska. You know, I crossed the Alaska range from the far West end to the far East end. And that ended right at the beginning of the rain gals. I'd like to keep going from there, from where I ended, that would be a, that would be a pretty, that would be a pretty amazing challenge, but uh, I also just, I'm dreaming right now of, of figuring out how to be a better dad. Like you said, it's hard. This is hard work. And I don't know that I've had this hard of a job, um, ever, you know, the, these other things are more linear, I guess, in a sense, you know, that they can, it feels like something I can bite off and take on. And I can fix that. I can do that Got it with these other things. Whereas parenting is, man, I don't know if I could do that. You know, I don't have that kind of confidence when it comes to it. It's, uh, it's, I haven't had that kind of challenge. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting, different kind of struggle. Well, it's interesting. Uh, there's someone who I might introduce you to. Her name's Kara Brookins. And she went through like these awful relationships with with men over the years and a lot of, uh, trauma and abuse and just like really ugly stuff. Um, and her kids were getting older and she wanted to do something that they could do as a family. And so they decided to build a house together. Um, and she didn't know anything about building a house and she learned and they did it together and they built a house. Wow, together. Neat. Um, she's really cool. It was one of one of the best episodes I think we've had. Um, so I think she would maybe inspire you that even though you're not a carpenter, that you can probably figure it out. And, and I'm sure I'd love to come visit at some point. And um, I, I, I can ski, you know, groom blacks is like my, my skiing. My brother likes to go into the woods and my friends like to go in the woods. 
I don't know. I got a concussion once skiing. I'm like, you know what, Brian, you stay on those groomers and, uh, you know, you can ski every day and you can, you can have a nice, give me the steep groomers. I'm, I'm good. My knees don't like the moguls. Um, but I, I'm down to come when you build that house, maybe I'll stay at the, uh, at your house on the property. And, um, that, that would be fun. I could bring my little ones out there. Um, but loved it, loved it, love to have you. That'd be great. It's, it's a special place here. I live in a very, very cool part of the world. But the other thing I was curious about is, is Patagonia. So you've got a Patagonia hat on. I know you have a relationship with them. And as you were traveling the world, one of the things that I think also came up for you was how poor of a job we're doing, taking care of our environment. And I think about Patagonia as a company and what they stand for. It's one of the most inspiring companies, those that follow how they think about values, how they think about their customers, how they think about clothing. Um, can you talk about your relationship with Patagonia, what you've seen from them, um, how it impacts how you think about maybe even capitalism or money or, or how business can run? They're the most inspiring thing in my life, hands down. That, that relationship, I've been with them for a long time as an ambassador, an athlete. Um, it's the most precious thing outside of my daughter to me that that relationship is their family they treat us like family and they care about one thing saving the planet you know they they do it through clothing sales but you know Yvonne Chouinard the who founded the company is literally my hero you know he's up there with Walter Payton and I mean he he's amazing and that I fell into a relationship with them. I consider the luckiest thing that's happened to me, literally. Um, you know, we, since COVID began, we all get together as once a month and have a little powwow on, on zoom. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's precious. And so how I think about them for the listeners, there, there's a couple things you got to do. Uh, one, watch the film 180 South and there's a, there's, there's a bunch of footage in there with Yvonne Chouinard. They, they go down and try, try to recreate one of his first ever expeditions with uh, the founder of North Face, Doug Tompkins and climb Corcovado, but it's a great film. And it's, there's a lot in there that kind of come directly out of his book, Let My People Go Surfing. So that's the second thing you got to do. When I read Let My People Go Surfing, this was years before I came I became an athlete for Patagonia. That was literally our Bible. When we got the whole boat business set up and going, whenever we came to a decision point, you know, where we had to go left or right and figure something out and we were really battling with what to do, I just asked myself, what would Yvonne do? And after reading the book, I didn't know Yvonne at that time. I had never met him. And, uh, but I'd read the book and it was, it just made the decision completely easy. And basically how he, every decision he ever makes is what's the best decision for the planet. Let's do that. That decision has almost sunk that company a few times, but in the end, it always works out. And look what they do for their, like you said, for their customers, for the planet, for their giving, for their voice. Um, it's super inspiring. And, you know, they were the first company, I think, in the country that had uh, childcare for their employees. You know, they've just led the way and it always just means them making even more and more money. And so you can do both. And uh, anyway, that, They've been incredibly inspiring to me. They're a touchstone for me. And I just couldn't be more grateful for that relationship. But I'm also, I'm also a little bit intimidated by the relationship, to be honest. And what I mean by that is, you know, it, it constantly reminds me of how much more I need to do. Look at what they're doing. I need to step it up, but in a good way. Gavin, this has been a blast. I could talk to you for hours and uh, I'm going to leave it here. And I want to promote cloudbasedmayhem.com, which is your website. I also know you're active on Instagram, Gavin McClurg. Did I pronounce your name right? Correct. Yeah. Gavin awesome. Uh, and then I know, I know you have a podcast. So promote anything else that you think 
people should know about, whether it has to do with you and the podcast and your website or your company um, or anything else that you just want to give a megaphone to? Like, I love the book recommendation, watch the movie. Like, what else do you think people should know about? Is there a nonprofit? Is there something else that you're really passionate about? Um, Just give me a megaphone, promote whatever it is that you want to. Yeah. uh, For those of you who want to get involved in making a difference. Patagonia launched a thing a few years back called Patagonia Action Works. It's just amazing. You know, if, if you're an accountant, a lawyer, you know, if you think if you're if you if you have expertise in anything, they can point you in the right direction to make a difference. Uh, and it's it's a really very cool platform, very user-friendly platform. So yeah, Patagonia Action Works, highly recommend them. If you want to go kite surfing in the craziest places in the world and dive and surf and do fun stuff, check out my company, Cabrina, the Cabrina Quest. Uh, the company is actually Offshore Odysseys, but if you just Google Cabrina Quest, Cabrina is the sponsor. P. Cabrina is a very good friend of mine, a long-time relationship with them. They're fantastic. And yeah, I host a podcast. It's it's really dedicated to free flight. So you know, ballooning, paragliding, hang gliding, base jumping, wingsuiting, this kind of thing. So it's very specific, but if you're into free flight or if you're thinking about getting into free flight, then check that out. That's cloudbasedmayhem.com and reach out to me with anything. If you go to that website, you'll find all my contact details and I'd I'd love to chat to you. So, but uh, this has been a blast. I love it. Thank you. And uh, thanks for your time, Brian. Uh, it's awesome. It's interesting. My mom was the adventurer in my family. So she was the one we went skydiving when we were, I was probably 13 or 14 years old in Africa over Victoria falls. Um, but it's funny because my brothers were more adventure junkies, you know, roller coasters. Um, and my mom was, but me and my dad were like the ant, we called them, we were anti-riders. We'd go play the games at the adventure parks. And there was one spot left to get on this rickety plane with no door in Africa to go skydiving. And my dad looks at me and he goes, Brian, you can go. Why don't you, why don't you go? <laughs> and so my mom has always been the explorer, the adventure. We used to go whitewater rafting out West skiing. Um, you know, there, there's so much beauty in our country out West to, to be seen and to be felt and to be had. So you're, you're bringing me back a little bit. The only thing gliding wise is paragliding. So I've got that, but um, you know, not, not many gliding from me, but um, Gavin, this has been a blast. I'm on Twitter. That's the place I like to play most at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn's the other place at Brian Levinson. And then you can listen to all these conversations. We mentioned Kara in this uh, conversation, uh, check out her podcast, but you can listen to them at strongskills.co slash podcast. Gavin, just really appreciate Lisa introducing the two of us. Um, And this was a blast for me as well. I've got a page full of notes and um, I know our listeners are going to get a lot from learning from you. And I can't wait to see you achieve all your dreams and and with your daughter and and living the life that that you want going forward. So thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for time. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I've always been very passionate about adventure. Um, you know, I think risk and taking taking risk that you are trained for isn't that risky. And it, like you said, it very much makes you feel alive. I don't like the adrenaline junkie thing. You know, I I really don't want to die doing what I do. And, um, you know, I, I try to keep it between the lines. You know, I try to keep it between, you know, in a skill level that I have and not go beyond that. And various people I have adventured with over the years have been really instrumental. Will Gad was a big one. I did this Rockies Traverse across the Canadian Rockies with him. And, you know, he's been able to walk that fine line longer than I have. And, uh, you know, I I wouldn't do this if I thought there was a good chance that I wouldn't make it out.